0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The long, strange saga of how I came to be interviewing Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday on Media Buzz is. Story with a lot of twists and turns. And the reaction to it, because uh, it made a lot of news, is as interesting as the interview itself. Uh, it has to do with the day-new-mall. I'm to throw in a fancy French word here at the beginning so you think I'm worth listening to and know what I'm talking about. And it had to do with the craziness of late Friday night, where I fell asleep at one point, and then the next day, When her people were sleeping, and so I wasn't even sure this interview was even going to come off. But I want to talk about it because I think it gives you a little backstage glimpse of dealing with a member of Congress who uh, has, understandably, quite a controversial reputation, but was a key ally of Kevin McCarthy, who was rounding up votes for him, who had in her hand A phone, and and everybody could see this, on the screen it said DT, Donald Trump, taking a call from Donald Trump and trying to get the former president to talk to one of the holdouts. This is all the nuttiness that went on before Kevin McCarthy finally became Speaker of the House on the 15th ballot, and it was wild and a little bit crazy, and I'm pretty critical of the media coverage, as you will find out. Later on, I want to talk about Bernard Kalb, who has just left us at the age of 100. We should all be so lucky. Uh, I worked with Bernie uh, in the early years of another media show, and I'll talk more about that. He was a character, he was a gentleman, Uh, interesting guy. Uh, And I'm sad for his family, his brother Marvin, you know, the Kalb brothers. (laughs) They were both in print, and then they both went into television. Uh, They wrote a couple of books together. I mean, it's it's quite a remarkable family. Uh, Just to touch on football, very happy, and we touched on this at the very end of the show uh, with Harold Ford, uh, that Damar Hamlin has recovered from that cardiac arrest episode that halted the game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals on ESPN's Monday Night Football just this past Monday, so it's one week ago. Um, the Bills played for the first time since then, yesterday. And of course, tensions and passions, I guess I should say, were running really high. So what happens on the very first play, the running back returns the kickoff. What was it? 96 yards for a touchdown. A 96 yard return on the very first play. No wonder Buffalo, which went on to win the game. Uh, against the Patriots uh, is feeling, you know, like it's the team of destiny. And I'm just so glad having watched that thing live and worried that the news would soon come that Demar Hamlin, who's now raised, what, like $7 million for his toy for kids charity, um, would not be able to ever get up and walk away. And now he's FaceTiming with his teammates and he can talk and, and all that. So all that is good. Um, I even know what to do with this story, so I'm just going to briefly mention it. Uh, Washington Boat says an executive at Wells Fargo's operation in India was fired and is being held following allegations he urinated on an elderly woman during a flight from New York to New Delhi. Shankar Mishra, arrested by New Delhi police. I mean, it's such a bizarre story. At first I thought it was some sort of fight. Then apparently he was so... Drunk out of his mind, completely inebriated that he did this. Uh, I'll spare you some of the details, but the woman who said this happened, said this was, you know, she's a senior citizen. It was done against her wishes. He begged her not to press charges. And she said in the face of his pleading and begging and my own shock and trauma, I found it difficult to insist on his arrest to press charges against him. Okay. Hope your next plane flight is a lot more pleasant than that. All right, let's get right down to story number one. Now, I try to get bookings with a number of members of Congress on the Republican side because this is just such a great story. I mean, on the other hand, it was such a boring story because you have 15 roll call votes. But this power struggle between the 20 holdouts who, uh, you know, were sort of in the never Kevin camp. And it looked like they were never going to give up. And what would that mean for Kevin McCarthy's hopes of becoming Speaker? And the problem that I have with the coverage is here you had Kevin McCarthy, and I said this on the air yesterday, winning easily more than 95% of the Republican caucus in his bid to become Speaker. And yet the coverage was like, oh my God, another humiliation. For Kevin McCarthy, he lost the uh, fourth round or the seventh round or the tenth round. What is he going to do? Uh, several people went on the air and said, he's going to drop out. He's, he can't win this thing. He's just going to drop out. That didn't age well. And you know, acting as if these things are easy. Well, they're not easy. He was trying to put together a deal. You I mean, could say he should have put it together a month ago. Others said he was asked uh, that his opponents were asking for too much. And so when you look at it, um, there wasn't another—the Rebels didn't have a candidate who could get more than 20 votes. You know, Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates are up there, and Gaetz said, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy won't have the votes today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Except ultimately he did. Um, and it wasn't like there was another candidate who was a credible future Speaker of the House. And that's why the coverage, I thought, was just way too— sort of in the weeds and not understanding that, you know, I mean, we were seeing glimpses of stuff we never see. Part of that was the C-SPAN cameras because because the House hadn't officially been sworn in, um, C-SPAN controlled the cameras. So if you had Kevin McCarthy on the 14th ballot Friday night, walking away angrily when he thought he had cut a deal to become Speaker, everybody, all the pundits like, okay, now this is it, he's going to do it. And then, you know, there was some screw-up, Or uh, Mike Rogers, who later apologized for losing his temper, who made a beeline uh, for Gates and had to be restrained by another member. I mean, this is stuff you don't usually see. And the point is that when the government controls the cameras, as it does 99% of the time, um, you don't get to see this stuff. But since the House wasn't officially sworn in, we saw a lot of raw anger and frustration and emotion and all of that. I mean, on that Friday night, Kevin McCarthy had had some people fly back from places where one guy's mother was ill, one guy's wife had had a premature baby with complications, and yet they came back because their votes were needed, and so the frustrations were really running high. Um, And now to Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is this. Um, When she first came to Congress, she was a fringe character you know, who seemed more interested in sort of building a following online. And she's hardly the only member of Congress of either party who, you know, was seeking to use social media to, um, you know, to build her brand, her personal brand. And and she said some wacky things, uh, which, you know, I asked her about and We'll get to in a second. But a few months ago, there was a big piece by Robert Draper, uh, a tremendous reporter for New York Times Magazine, uh, he had interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene numerous times and her staff for his book. Um, and in that, he said that um, she was being taken more seriously by Kevin McCarthy and was sort of in the process of trying to become a more serious legislator as opposed to just a bomb thrower. So in any event, you know, McCarthy's the only guy with a shot at becoming speaker. She turns into an ally of his. And I thought, well, that's an interview I'd like to do. So we put out the word, went to one of her people, and we got a tentative yes, and this was Friday. And then, you know, the world just went crazy. And that's when I went to sleep. It looked like they were voting after the uh, McCarthy fell one vote short. A couple of people voted present, which means you don't need 218 votes. It all gets down into the weeds. But... um it looked like they just failed and they were just going to kick the can down the road until Monday. So I figured, all right, screw this. I'll go to sleep. It was already, you know, eleven fifteen or something. And then it was after that that they went, they went back to the rebels, to the um, insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them. Um, one, Dan Crenshaw, called them terrorists. Later apologized for that. They were holding the house hostage, no question, but, you know. Anybody who who filibusters on the Senate side is holding the Senate hostage. I mean, it's just a common thing in the tangled parliamentary politics of D.C. So it all happened late that night. I mean, early Saturday morning, they finally cut some kind of complicated deal um, where several members, a whole gang of them, agreed to vote present, and that meant Kevin McCarthy would have enough votes. Earlier... He had flipped about 14 votes. But as I say, it was razor thin and he didn't quite get it done. So the next morning, I said, well, this will be a pretty good interview because you know she was right in the center of it. But can't reach her, her person. Why? Because they're all up to four in the morning dealing with this. And I'm trying to plan the show and I don't know if she's going to back out. Is she going to be able to do it? Does she still want to do it? Um, we we're kind of in a little bit of limbo. Finally, uh, I called one of her aides on his cell and he sounded a little groggy and I felt a little bad about that. But he said, yeah, we'll, we'll, do it. Uh, we'll, we'll come to the Washington studio. And then here's the thing. So a lot of people who had adored Marjorie Taylor Greene now just started attacking her even before the interview aired and they had just no interest in actually seeing what she had to say. And then you can critique it one way or another. It was just like, she's a sellout, she's going to Kevin McCarthy, he's one of them, he's a swamp creature, blah, blah, blah. Um, And they're entitled to their opinion. But I don't quite understand why they um, were so angry at her. Because after all, you could say she was part of a team that got a lot of concessions, which we'll come back to, for the hard-right Republicans. So I sit down with her, and uh, she was describing how people's patience was wearing thin. And uh, she said, and I I then kind of had this graphic ready. And I said, look, a few months ago, you talked to Robert Draper of The Times, and you said this about Kevin. You said, I think to be the best speaker, he's got to please the base. He's going to give me a lot of power and a lot of leeway. And if he doesn't, they're going to be very unhappy about it. That's not in any way a threat. That's reality. So I said, could it be said, and this is not like this has never gone on in the history of the Republic, that you already cut your deal, that you made an arrangement with Kevin McCarthy, that you would be an influential player in in the next Congress in exchange for your support. And she said, no, 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 that's not true. I don't have any committee assignments yet. I submit the same form everybody else does. I don't have a promise. Other people were promised things. Um... I just fully support Kevin McCarthy. Now, is that true? Are these things written on paper? Is there a sort of a tacit understanding? You know, I'll leave it to the viewer to decide uh, how that is going. But the reason is, this is particularly relevant, is Marjorie Taylor Greene in the past, most of the past two years, has not sat on any committees. The reason she has not is that the Democrats came in soon after she was elected and kicked her off her committees, which is raw politics. Um, and it would be understandable that Kevin McCarthy would want to restore that um, because she was saying a lot of pretty wild things, some of them having to do with QAnon so I put it right there on the table I said, you know didn't you at the time describe yourself as a follower of QAnon and then you then say that you'd look further into it and you had thought it through and you had renounced the conspiracy theories that QAnon peddles And she said, well, I had easily gotten sucked into some things I'd seen on the internet, but that was dealt with quickly early on. I never campaigned on those things. That was not something I believed in. It's not what I ran for Congress on. So those are so far in the past. And that's fine. I wanted to get it on the record and give her a chance uh, to address it. That got widely picked up. Um, And then I also had in my hand something she had tweeted in late December in which she said, look, Uh, being conservative and anti-establishment, I used to criticize Kevin McCarthy a lot. Uh, So how did she end up on his side? Well, she said to me, the congresswoman from Georgia said, um, that we had some public confrontations. We each said things that were unkind about each other. And then I thought I would just listen to him. And this is the key thing for people who want to just be bomb throwers uh, versus people who want to get stuff done. Marjorie Taylor Greene came to understand—I'm not defending everything she says or does, and I, you know, tried to press her on this stuff. Uh, one more point I'll get to in a second—that um, you have to get to 218. That's just the magic number in the House. In other words, that it's all about the math. That you could have the most, uh, you know, zillions of Instagram followers and raise a lot of money and easily get reelected to Congress and have your own brand. But if you want to get a damn thing done in Washington, you need other people on your side. And that was sort of the criticism of McCarthy. He wasn't um, ideological enough because he's a guy who, you know, he's a glad hander. He's a backslapper. slapper. Uh, he's a likable guy trying to make a deal. So others are saying, no, 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 no. And then, of course, they ended up uh, going along. Um, I also said to her, look, most of the people who are supporting Kevin McCarthy uh, are also supporters of Donald Trump. And she described how angry this other congressman was, uh, Matt Rosendale, when she tried to hand him the phone. And he said, don't ever do that to me, with President Trump on the line. And she said she did was able to facilitate a couple other conversations between Trump and wavering members. In any event, I said most of the people backing McCarthy also backed you know, January 6th. And she, at an earlier point, had criticized one of the members who was a holdout for voting not to accept the results of the Electoral College on January 6th, which, of course, was part of uh, the whole riot. And I said, you know, do you accept that Joe Biden is legitimately elected president? And she turned it around and said, of course, Joe Biden is the president. That's always a silly question. I said, I'm not trying to be silly, I'm trying to clarify, because she took the key phrase out, legitimately elected. Now, I could have at that point said yes, but, you know, Donald Trump says uh, that it was a stolen election, do you agree with that? I know she does agree with that. But I had about a half a minute left. I mean, literally, I'd used all the extra time to try to both give her a chance to say what she wanted to say, and to pin her down on things ranging from QAnon to the Trump calls to the near fistfight that occurred. Um... And that's the nature of television so i saw she got attacked a lot for this but on the other hand she now whatever committee assignment she gets or doesn't get um you know will have some influence with the speaker of the house all right number two you look at all the stories that were written after mccarthy got it and they're all incredibly negative toward the republicans now look i'm not sure recording this the republicans looked awful they looked like they couldn't get their act together uh, it was an S show. Uh, it looked like they couldn't govern. It wasn't clear what the holdouts wanted, other than maybe reveling in a lot of media attention. But nevertheless, you know, McCarthy was asked at the very end, you know, how confident are you are that you'll be able to serve a full two-year term? He said 1,000%. And he had the gavel and he walked away. So just to give you the flavor of all of the negative things that are being written right now, Politico, Kevin McCarthy, this is from Playbook, finally got the gavel, but in the process, he gave away the House. The concessions the California Republican awarded his critics to secure his position, all but ensure he will operate as Speaker in name only. For the first time in decades, rank-and-file members will have as much power as their leader. Um, The chaotic week was just a prelude. Now we have the Freedom Caucus essentially having veto power over anything McCarthy wants to do. And he did accept a deal where any single member, not just five members, but one member, could call for a snap vote that would kick him out of the speaker's chair. That seems like a pretty suicidal thing to do, but it was the only way he was going to get it done. And by the way, whether he accepted it or not, they they always had the power to, to do this. And previous Republican speakers have grappled with this as well. Now, says playbook, uh, conservatives eager to flex will dominate the legislative process. Uh, McCarthy's camp has sought to downplay this charge. You know, he's only got a four-seat majority. Um, coming up, tough votes for moderates and swing state reps um, because they don't want to take votes. The people who are, who are I'm calling them more moderate, they're conservative, but they're not as conservative as, you know, a Matt Gates or a Lauren Boebert. And so... They've been able to avoid, through the Rules Committee, taking votes that would hurt them in their general election campaigns. Um, but now, says Politico, they won't be able to avoid that. Okay, fair point. Uh, the normal GOP member will now have to take a lot of hard right votes. Okay, New York Times had like three pieces, every single one of them negative toward the Republicans. One said began by saying Newt Gingrich was disdainful after watching the uh, how days of House Republicans failing to elect a speaker. He said, there's no deal you can make with Gates. He's essentially bringing Lord of the Flies to the House of Representatives. And then it went back into Newt's own uh, tenure as Speaker, when he was able to lead his party to a victory, meaning Republican control, for the first time in 40 years. Imagine being in minority for 40 years. Um, and basically it says the Republican Party has been, you know, kind of in a battle with its hard right ever since Newt. Okay, here's another New York Times story. Speaker Kevin McCarthy won his job by bowing to the demands of a group of far-right Republican dissidents to overhaul how the House operates, effectively diluting his own power while increasing theirs. Some of the concessions McCarthy made would make it the practical business of running the House next to impossible. Be left unable to do basic things like fund the government or finance the federal debt. For the dissidents, that was the point. For the country, it could lead to some grim consequences. Here's another New York Times piece. A week that exposed the deep divisions rolling the Republican Party, the power of an unyielding, ungovernable, hard-right flank that revels in upending the normal operations of government and a leader who has repeatedly capitulated to the right in his quest for power. Now, I'm not saying any of these things won't happen, But they haven't happened yet. And yes, there's going to be, you know, brinksmanship and financial showdowns. It's not like the House was run so great before. I mean, if you're a Democrat and you like the way Nancy Pelosi ran the House um, and you don't mind a $1.7 trillion spending bill because you like spending being shoved down everybody's throat in the last, you know, 24 hours when nobody's had a chance to read the bill, that that was great, right? I don't think so. Um, And so... It just seemed to me there might have been a little, you know, maybe, you know, 5% room for doubt. Like maybe this won't happen or maybe we shouldn't prejudge. It's all just like the Republicans are stupid, evil, and this is a done deal. And if the Republicans bring the government to the brink of default or, you know, remember when you default, the the U.S. government has already spent that money. So it's a kind of a BS grandstand play to say, well, I'm not going to vote to fund this when the government is already potentially in default, and I will be as critical as anybody else. But all this sort of looking into the future business. Um, More balanced column from Dan Bowles in the Washington Post, that it took McCarthy so much effort to win the speakership is a direct reflection of how January 6th influenced what happened two months ago. Um, They had only themselves to blame. Even after the attack on the Capitol, a majority of House Republicans sought to challenge the results in the Electoral College. And that's where you get... You know, because we had Friday as the second anniversary of the Electoral College and the Capitol riot, of course, um, it's 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 still painful for a lot of people. And with Donald Trump, a declared candidate, and still saying that he was robbed, and it, it's not like any of this has gone away. Here's another piece in Politico, beginning with former uh, Maverick Republican Senator Alan Simpson. This is not a Republican Party anymore. It's a cult. And it's another one of these pieces that looks back and says, well, yeah, it's always been like this for decades now. The end of Trump's vice grip on the Republican Party should be a healthy development, except for one problem. Instead of being a party of one, they are presently a party of none. No leaders, no shared principles, no consensus on policy objectives. Again, we shall wait and see. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Story number three. Joe Biden at the Texas border yesterday. He took off right after, right before my show began. And so didn't land in time to deal with it. But it is interesting. And some journalists deserve credit. But by and large, you just have the impression that the president wanted to get this over with. Made the obligatory stop in El Paso. And then moved on to Mexico, where he is today. Um, so he wasn't there that long. He uh, visited a migrant services support center. He was greeted by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who gave him a letter rather than sort of denouncing him to his face, saying your, your visit is two billion and two and two years short, $2 billion short and two years too late. Okay. And the president was getting criticized from all sides. Um, here's a New York Times story saying, Democrats and human rights activists condemned his new enforcement plan as a humanitarian disgrace. It was Michael Scheer of the New York Times at a White House briefing with Karine Jean-Pierre and John Kirby, who said, look, I'm hearing criticism from the left by immigration advocates of your plan, which has to do with if you're from one of four countries, you can't just show up. You got to register first and stay in your country until your number is called, if it's called. Uh, In any event, Sheer says to them, he's hearing worse descriptions than during the Trump years, when, of course, the border was so controversial. Um, and the piece goes on to say, well, you know, uh, the number of apprehensions by the Border Patrol has hit record highs in the last 12 months. Border Patrol agents encountered 1.7 million migrants trying to cross illegally. This is a huge, huge disaster, and it's only going to get worse. Um, Biden made an unannounced stop along the 18 foot border wall that separates El Paso from Juarez, Mexico, talked to some border patrol agents, strolled along a dirt road on the American side. He did not actually come into contact with any migrants. He could have, uh, there was a, so well, they've already been processed, but if he had wanted to, he could have, I don't think he wanted those pictures. Um, and look, I actually think he should have done this a long time ago. On my show, Ben Domin had said, well, you know, by doing this now, after the midterms, at least it takes away a talking point from the other side. Like, like they can't stand up anymore and say, Joe Biden has not even visited the border. So he has checked that box. But it's going to take a lot more. And, you know, this is just a cold dose of reality because it's not like Donald Trump had the answers. I mean, remember all the gruesome family separations and then the efforts to reunite those families? I mean, it was just horrifying. And... And then Biden comes in and he says, well, I'm not sending a signal that the border is open, but he he was in, in the things that he did. And the border is pretty porous right now. I mean, I don't think anybody who's down there can deny it. What I'm glad about it is finally getting some media coverage rather than just being dismissed as a partisan midterm issue, or this is an issue where Fox likes to beat the drums. I mean, this is, I don't care if you're an R or a D or you have no political affiliation whatsoever, or you're pro-immigration or you're anti-immigration. This is a huge disaster for our country, a potential national security threat. That's without even getting into fentanyl. And um, just the mere fact that the border has been overwhelmed. Somebody's got to deal with it. And I don't know that Biden's efforts are going to be any better than anybody else's, but we shall see. Number four this is kind of shocking. You know, a lot of times I say, well, you know, this is just deja vu. The, the violence in Brazil, Brazilian authorities looking into one of the worst attacks on its democracy in the 38 years since the military dictatorship in that country ended. So you may know, you probably know, that Brazil's former far-right president, Bolsonaro, stormed government buildings yesterday in the capital of Brasilia to protest what they called was a stolen election. Is this starting to sound familiar? Now, the election was won by the leftist former president, Lula, Lula da Silva. And the Supreme Court ordered the authorities to break up these camps where protesters and rioters uh, had kind of seized control. They sprung up in front of army barracks across in cities across Brazil Lula signed an emergency decree putting federal authorities in charge of security in Brazil's capital Uh, in scenes reminiscent of January 6th in the U.S. And it's an unavoidable comparison. Bolsonaro supporters laid siege to the Congress, Supreme court and presidential offices. The violent culmination of years of conspiracy theories advanced by Bolsonaro. They set fires uh, they turn barricades into weapons. They knock police officers off horse- horseback. They film their own violent acts. This is just painfully reminiscent of what we went through just about two years ago. Now, Bolsonaro, who lost the runoff by about two points, criticized his own protesters, to his credit, saying on Twitter that peaceful demonstrations were fine, but that the destruction... And invasions of public buildings like what occurred today were not. Bolsonaro appeared to be in Florida. um, And he also repudiated Lula for saying that he personally bore some responsibility uh, for what has happened. So again, you know, you got a current president, you got a former president, you got uh, people breaking windows, overturning furniture, looting. Wow. Wow. And now you have the country struggling to regain some semblance of control. I think the army at the moment has control, but who knows whether this is over or not. At least eight journalists were attacked or robbed by supporters of Bolsonaro. Uh, At least five had their equipment broken or stolen. A New Yorker magazine reporter was assaulted. Photographer for Brazil's largest newspaper attacked. They destroyed my equipment. They beat me, but I'm fine. Wow. Wow. And here's Joe Scarborough making the inevitable comparison after 240 years, he said this morning, of exporting democracy from this country, Jeffersonian democracy around the world, where now through Donald Trump, we've got people supporting fascism, election denialism, hatred of the press, hatred of the courts, all the things that Bannon was saying, that's what the people of Brazil picked up on. Well, okay, but I don't know if it's fair to blame Donald Trump for this. I mean, did we create the playbook, the model? Um... It just gives me a sinking feeling to see another country go through this after having what seemed to be a fair election. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Uh, Let's see here. Number five, Howard Stern coming under attack by Donald Trump. Now, this has been building for a long time. So back in the day when Donald Trump, Trump was just a celebrity businessman and playboy, he used to go on Stern's radio show all the time. And they would talk, talk smack about women and so forth. And then Howard always said he's a great guest. But politically speaking, once Donald got into politics, I mean, it was clear that Howard Stern backed Hillary Clinton. They did like a two-and-a-half-hour interview at one point. And then once Trump became president, and especially after January 6th, I mean, Howard Stern has been attacking him and his supporters uh, for what he sees as an assault on democracy. So it's hardly surprising that Trump would hit back. It took him—I don't long enough. I don't know what, why he was waiting. Here's what he put on True Social. I've been noticing the fact that Howard Stern's show has gone to hell, <laughs> and so few people are listening. It used to be great. Now it rates less than fair. It's a sad thing to watch. He loved Trump when it was hot. Then he decided to go with cricket Hillary. His ratings world collapsed. Can't believe they pay him so much money, but I hope he gets it. And Stern said, you know, he might have to run in 2024. I'll beat his ass. All right. So the the the, the flaw in this is that Howard Stern now is on a pay channel. That's his value to Sirius XM. People get subscriptions in part because they want to listen to the Stern show. Also because they like the music and other lots of other offerings on Sirius XM. So when he says the ratings are down, we don't even know what the ratings are because it all depends on the internal numbers of Sirius XM, which are not shared. But even if obviously then compared to being on terrestrial radio, you undoubtedly would have fewer numbers of people because it's a pay service. It doesn't mean the show is failing. In fact, the show has gotten great marks, uh, especially when Stern does these long form interviews, for example, um, with Bruce Springsteen, which was two and a half hours of just pure Bruce talking about music, playing music on his guitar and a piano. And you know, You don't get two-and-a-half-hour interviews with somebody like uh, The Boss on commercial radio. You can't. It's not built for that. I Finally, I said I wanted to come back uh, to Bernie Kalb. I thought he'd live to be 130. I mean, the guy just seemed indefatigable. You know, it was back in 1992, CNN created a media show, Reliable Sources. Bernard Kalb was the host, and I was the lead panelist and we were just sort of figuring out as we went along. In fact, this would never happen today. We did the pilot, like on a Tuesday, and then a couple of days later they said, okay, pilot's greenlighted, you're on starting Sunday. I mean, you know, no market research, not a lot of uh, evidence, not a lot of, you know, creation of graphics or any of that. And, you know, I must say, you know, Bernie was a character. Uh, he had been a New York Times reporter. He had been a network reporter. He was full of verve and style. Uh, sometimes he could repeat himself. His going to Vietnam was uh, and covering that war was so important to him. He talked about it all the time. Sometimes he would ask me for advice. But I just learned some tricks of the trade from Bernie Kalb, who had been in television a lot longer uh, than I had. And then eventually there was a year when we sort of co-hosted the show and then they may be the host of the show and then I went on to host that program for 22 years and look that was I I was very proud of that franchise it was very different than what it became not casting aspersions on anybody everybody's got their own vision about how to do this but I always tried to do it in a way that wasn't purely partisan and it's the same way that I do the job now people who don't like me, don't like Fox, you know, how much have they actually watched? If they watch and they have constructive critiques, great. But the thing about Bernie is, um, every week he would wear what seemed to be the same burnt orange tie. It was sort of this orange brown mixture. I thought it was kind of ugly, but it was his signature. And what people didn't know was he had a whole closet full of those ties and he would rotate them because eventually otherwise they would get dirty and, you know, you couldn't wear the same tie every week, but, you know, that was just sort of, he was he was, a, he was the kind of guy for whom the word dapper would apply. And he could be aggressive in interviewing somebody, or he could just do a long rambling question that didn't produce a, uh, something that would make news. But we had a good chemistry together, I thought, during the years we worked together. Uh, we should all live to be 100 years old. And one other quick point, Uh, I had completely forgotten this. Bernie Kalb in the 1980s had been a State Department spokesman during the Reagan administration, and he resigned in protest after not having been told that there was an active disinformation program going on using the auspices of the State Department to feed stuff to journalists just to sort of smoke out um, what was going on in the espionage world. And he rightly said, this is unacceptable and unethical. And he put his job on the line, he quit. That very rarely happens. And so it's another, he had a long and varied career. And that was maybe um, one of the high points where he didn't just, you know, try to justify it or be mealy-mouthed about it. He said, I I can't defend this policy. I wasn't informed about this policy and I'm out of here. And with that, I'm out of here. Gone a little long today, but a lot to talk about after that crazy weekend. Hope you had a good weekend. All the media, many of the Media Buzz segments are online. So please check them out, including the MTG interview. Hope you'll subscribe now that our numbers are really hot. You want to find out what everyone's talking about, right? I'll see you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.